What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How did they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Aleem Mawani, the founder of a company called Streak. Aleem and I both started companies around the same time, in 2011 for me and 2012 for him. We were both funded by Y Combinator, and both of us built Chrome extensions that modify your Gmail inbox and attempt to make you more productive. The difference between our two companies is that his still exists. I gave up, quit, moved on to other things, whereas Aleem and his co-founder kept plugging away. And today, his company is very profitable, generates millions in revenue, employs a few dozen people, and he's just happy running it. So in this episode, we get to hear Aleem's story and how we got here. It's cool talking to you because we've both done things in the email space. Like I did Y Combinator back in 2011 with this app Task Force. And Paul Graham was a, had this huge kick about how everybody's going to work from their inbox. Everybody already is working for their inbox. And if you could just build something interesting on top of the inbox, like that's your Trojan horse to get hundreds of millions of users. And it didn't really work out that way for me. Right. I ended up pivoting away from Task Force and working on other things. But I think you started streaking when in 2012? Early 2012. Yeah, late 2000. We, were, we were in YC 2011. We should talk about that later, but we, we pivoted through YC. And yeah, 2012 is when we actually got serious about streak. It's been eight years now. How well is Streak doing yeah. in terms of you know, revenue, users, company size, or however you measure your success? Yeah, revenue is obviously a big part of it. I think the part that we're most proud of is profitable, being yeah. sort of a profitable Silicon Valley startup. You know, it, it kind of shouldn't be abnormal, but it is. And so we're, we're happy that we are sort of self-sustaining and basically control our destiny. So yeah, profitable. We have 30 folks on the team. We were in two offices before, and now we're remote, like like most people. And yeah, revenue in the in the millions. Super exciting, and not particularly common for companies. I think that were started back then to try to be profitable. So I remember doing YC, yeah. and building an email product, and the partners there saying like, "Why are you Why are you charging money?" Because we were part of the Stripe beta in 2011, and it was like anathema back then to try to charge money for what you were doing. Like you needed to grow right. as big as you possibly could, get millions of users. And then figure it out later, like all the rest of the Silicon Valley startups are doing. Right. We, I mean, we, we tried that as well, actually. It wasn't that we were profitable from day one. We didn't charge from day one either. But at some point, we were like, for us, you know, we're a CRM product built into Gmail. And so for us, we weren't too worried about people paying us because they're used to paying for CRMs, right? They're used to paying for expensive Salesforce or whatever. And so we, we weren't too worried about like, hey, could we eventually charge for this product? We kind of knew we could. And we just honestly, like, we were kind of lazy at the beginning. We just didn't want to do the billing system. You know, we didn't want to do like promos and A-B testing pricing pages and stuff. We just wanted to hone and perfect the product. And there was really probably no pressure back then to start charging anyway. So yeah, I mean, like we had raised money. We, you know, we'd, we'd done the YC things. So we got some money there. We'd raised, you know, seed rounds. We had some money there. We weren't really hiring that many people. You know, we had three or four people on the team. So like, you know, it, it, there wasn't a lot of pressure for us to like start charging right away. So if you could go back to 2012 and tell the brand new founder, Aleem, hey, this is where we are in 2020. Here's what we're up to. Here's how much money we're making. Here's how big the company is. What do you think he would say? It's interesting. I would be happy that we didn't die. I used to think of startups as like very, very bimodal. And like that is kind of in the conventional wisdom that you either like get massive, like 
Google Massive or you die. Like those are the two options. And I think the thing that would have surprised me back then was that like, hey, there is this third option of being a large growing business that is profitable and making money, but not necessarily like Google size. And that's like a great place to be. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you get a lot of control over basically what you do with your life, what you build at your company. You're generating yeah. revenue, you're profitable, you got 30 people. I mean, that's enough people. You can just do pretty much anything you want. You can say, okay, we're going to build this cool feature and just go do it, right? You can right, take probably right. weeks off and just be fine. And it's not necessarily, I think, what investors, at least in like high growth startups, have traditionally said they wanted. You know, they want you to go for the, the boom or the bust. Uh, how do you deal with, with those expectations? Because you, you said you raised money. Do your investors care that, that you want to take this third option? Right, right. I mean, maybe it's more than three options because that either, you know, you die or you get Google huge in nine months. And then, you know, this sort of middle option, a lot of investors would claim that's kind of like a lifestyle business. But I don't, I don't look I don't look at Streak as like a lifestyle business. I look at it as like, hey, I'm still putting in a lot of work and a lot of effort, but it's because I want to and I really enjoy what I'm doing. Um, so it's it's not a lifestyle business in the sense of like, hey, I work four hours a week and that's it. It's, it's, it's not that at all. Maybe that's like a fourth option. But there is this this option of like, you know, still working hard on a business that you really enjoy, it growing, it becoming very large. Like, it, you know, there, there are examples of companies like our, like Basecamp is a good example. Like, I, I don't think they've published their sort of revenue numbers, but but from what I know, that they're, you know, an extremely profitable company and in terms of revenue, like very large. So you can be a large growing company without necessarily the whole like VC route. Yeah, that, that, I, I think that's great for us because like we just, yeah, like you said, we don't have the pressure to do things we don't want. We have we have the time to focus on making sure that like the inside of the company is solid, that people enjoy their work, that we communicate well, we enjoy the people we work with, we work on things that we enjoy, and we have more time to breathe and do those things as opposed to like, I think when you're under this constant pressure on the VC track, like you kind of put those this you, you kind of put those concerns aside and you're like, oh I'll deal with those later. And I think the term lifestyle business being this sort of derogatory phrase to describe people who don't want to work is so silly. Because number one, who who doesn't want a good lifestyle? If you look at the founders of right. any huge company, you're like, you know what they're doing? Like <laughs> spend a lot of time making sure their life is great. And number two, like there isn't just one lifestyle. Like not everybody wants to just like work four hours a week and then sit on a beach. Like a lot of people really enjoy the companies that they build. They really enjoy right. like, the unique lifestyle that your company can provide for you. I think it's, you get a lot more control over it, quite frankly, if you run your own company than if you work for somebody else. So I've never right. really understood like why that's been such a derogatory term. Yeah, I don't think it's... I don't look at it as derogatory. And you're right, Like you have to spend time designing, designing your life. I think maybe the difference is with the VC-backed companies, you can say, hey, this is going boom or bust in 18 months. And so for 18 months, I can do... I'll put up with anything. You know, I don't care about my lifestyle being great or not. I'll put up with anything and just get it done. And then after that, everything will be fine, right? <laughs> and so that's great if it works out like that because, you know, there is right. a finite time and uh, there's nothing. It's kind of like these two camps where, you know, the lifestyle people are saying, hey, this VC track people are doing the wrong thing. The VC track people are looking at the lifestyle people and they're saying like, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. I think like both are fine as long as you know which one you're doing and, and why you're doing it. And so if you're on that 18 month thing and you're like, hey, I want to know, I want to have an answer in 18 months. Right whether this is huge or not, great, do the VC track thing and like, go for it. If instead you want to design your life starting from now, you do it a little bit differently. I, actually, sort of an open question for me that I've been struggling with is actually we started in that path. We started in the whole like, hey, we want to do the 18-month thing or whatever. And that's obviously changed sort of since then. 
But I think we got really lucky. We got the opportunity to raise some money. So we didn't feel the pressure at the beginning. We had a chance of going big in 18 months. Not that we're not going to go big in, in a longer time horizon, but we had a chance to go big. And that didn't happen. The alternative wasn't zero for us. The alternative, instead, what happened was we failed according to the VC model, but the alternative was we created this large profitable business instead. Like that was the failure mode was large profitable business and large profitable and growing software business. And so like, I think that's an option for, I think it's with SaaS, it opens that option as like, there basically needs to be a new model for, hey, like, yes, you can raise money and attempt to go, you know, to the billion outcome in 18 months. But if it doesn't work out, here's this other option. Right now, there isn't like a clean way to make that transition. We kind of got lucky making that transition, but there isn't a clean way with, for example, with investors of like, how do you make that transition? Like, there's no convertible note that says, hey, if you end up becoming a large profitable business instead, here's what happens to the note, right? Like all the financing docs and stuff like that are built around, if you go huge, here's what happens. And if you die, here's what happens. Nobody talks about what happens if you just, yeah, nobody talks about that. I think that's an option. I think a lot more founders would start companies if they knew that like they could still go big and if not, they could still be a large profitable company. I mean, you're right. There's something appealing about that 18 month vision of like, okay, I'm just going to work right. super hard. I'm going to crush it. I'm going to sacrifice like these two years of my life and then I'm going to be set for the rest of my life. And it works out for some people, you know, like we both met people who that like that happened for, for them. Sure. But I tried that also in my 20s and you know, a lot of people say they don't have any regrets. I regret trying it. I 100% if I could really? go back in time and do it differently, I would have worked more reasonable hours. Well, I, I think there's this idea that you can will like a billion dollar company into existence just by working mm. super hard. But often mm. I think like if you hit on something where like the market's right and your product's right, like it's kind of dragging that work out of you. Like you're just running, right. to, trying to keep up. But if you're trying to push something that's not really right. blowing up that way, then it's like you really should, you could just get the same amount of work done in half the time and have probably this similar outcome. So it's not worth it. Like, what are you sacrificing your life for this thing that's not going to blow up? Right. So right. I, I think the dream makes a lot of sense, but ultimately it's important to know when to call it quits and to know when, like, you're not on that kind of unicorn, crazy compounding right. growth path. I mean, yeah, it's probably, it's probably useful to like time box it where it's like, hey, yeah. I'm, th- this is something I want to do in my life is try to go down this, you know, PC path and make the next Google or whatever. And there's a huge amount of risk associated with it. And so therefore, I'm willing to commit sort of this amount of my like this, this number of years in my 20s is reasonable to invest in that. It's not reasonable to invest all of them. It's not maybe reasonable and, and have no outcome. But yeah, as long as you sort of time box it. And, and that's, that's kind of what I mean with the investment thing too, right? Like right now, if you if you started, if you try to raise money from an investor right now and said, hey, my plan is to become a billion dollar company. But in 18 months, if that doesn't work out, I'm just going to become a large profitable business. If you if you like said that in any pitch meeting, you would not get funded. But it is, I think, a really useful heuristic for founders is to like, hey, like I'm going to invest this amount of effort, this amount of time in doing this high risk activity. And when that high risk activity doesn't work, my if it works, great, I'll keep going. And if it doesn't work, then here's what I'm going to do next. That's a really useful heuristic for founders. But right now, it's too taboo to say that, right? Like yeah. you can't, you couldn't say that in an investor meeting. So I want to go back in time to like the beginning of Streak and and find out what you were thinking back then because now you've got like all these very wise and takes where you've been through the trenches right. and seen possibilities at the beginning. Uh, if you were anything like I was, like you had no idea what you were doing, oh, yeah. uh, and it was a huge black box mystery in terms of what could happen. Uh, how did you first come to start working on Streak? How did you come up with the idea? I was in grad school and knew I wanted to do a startup. I'd been like sort of Google before then and. Uh, 
And I'd, I actually left Google because I was like, hey, like I'm, I'm kind of jaded on software. It's not, not for me. So I went to grad school to get into like more physical businesses. Like I wanted to learn about transportation. I wanted to learn about manufacturing. But while at grad school, like, you know, I was doing all that work. But in my spare time, I was like programming for fun. Like that was, that's just what I was doing for fun. And, you know, eventually I kind of realized like, hey, if I'm doing this for fun, that's probably what I enjoy and what I should be doing. But maybe just the environment at Google was not sort of for me. And so I knew I wanted to start a company and so started working on, you know, like a made up idea. It's like, hey, I want to do a startup. Like, what would be a great idea for a company? And, I, you know, just sat in my room by myself thinking of startup ideas or whatever. And like, I, I think you kind of can predict where this story is going. <laughs> you know, it, it was basically like, you know, some loyalty program with your credit card or whatever, you know, something that people don't really care about. And actually I had a great line from Paul Buka and PG about that. But yeah, so was doing that, ended up going to Y Combinator for that idea, worked on it for the entire batch. And then basically... Oh, so they liked the idea. Well, they, they like, I think they liked us because what I did was with that idea, I went out to, and our customers would have been like local businesses. And so I went out to a bunch of local businesses and I was like, Hey, if I built this, like, would you use it? Would you pay, would you pay for it? And and I'm happy we did that. And they all said yes. So that, that, that was interesting that they all said yes. And I said, well, I don't know if I trust you. Sign this piece of paper that says, if you built this, I would pay for it. And by the way, mm-hmm. you know, it's non-binding at all. So, and so, of course, everyone signed it. And so like, that kind of made me feel like we were onto something. And our business was sort of two-sided marketplace. So like, you know, we had these local businesses on one side, and we had consumers on the other. And so I didn't even bother testing the consumer side. I just like, went to the local businesses. And so they liked the YC liked us because we, were, you know, we came into the interview and we we're like, hey, we got like 20 letter assigned from we haven't built anything yeah. but we have 20 letters signed from business. you've been pounding the pavement you've been doing sales you're like the prototypical like these founders are hungry we'll invest in them no matter what they're working on exactly exactly you know we, we do the office hours with pg and and he would always push back on the idea of being like hey is this really useful does anybody really want this and we're like no no, no. like you know we, we we were trying to be the the prototypical founder of like no you got to really believe in your idea and you got to like <laughs> push back on anybody who thinks that it's gonna fail or anything and so like we're like no no it's gonna work and then, you know, two weeks before demo day, you know, we go to the PG and we're basically like, hey, like, you know, our metrics aren't good. Like, how do we how do we do demo day and show this to investors when our metrics aren't that great? And he's basically like, forget demo day. I'm just trying to understand how long it's going to take you guys to realize that this is a bad idea and you should not be working on this. Like, you know, he, and, and, and I'm, I'm so grateful he was so direct because like... Uh, and he was right. Like, there's no, there's no use in like, you know, uh, putting lipstick on the pig for demo day, right? And so we we pivoted two weeks before demo day. Um, Crazy. And then he had, and then he had basically great, you know, PJ had great advice for how to pick sort of next next idea. And and the main thing was like, hey, what would yourself, what would you yourself have used in these last two months that you've been working on your business? Like, what would you have used? And initially, our ideas were all like related to the thing that we were pivoting away from. And he's like, hey, your old crappy idea is done. Don't try to like salvage anything from that, right? Like don't try to repurpose something you built for this new thing. No, just like get rid of it. It's gone. You're starting from scratch. Let's zoom in on this, this, this like solving your own problems thing where you're, you're trying to come yeah. up with an idea because I love the approach that you took. Often I tell people the best way to come up with an idea is to start a company that does anything, literally anything. And then when right. you're working on that, you're going to realize that there's all these tools that you would, you would pay for, that you would use, that you need, that are missing, and then go like start one right. of those companies. There was probably like 10 or 15 things we built internally that have now gone on to become like $100 million businesses or more. 
and and it's because like we needed them and so we kind of built them and it had we not been working on like had streak not been going well we would have definitely picked on one of those ideas and made that our company you know so definitely agree with that advice like just work on something and you'll find the something to work on how did you choose streak over these other ideas that had promise and that could have been big companies like why was that the one right. that stood out to you as promising yeah so for us man we're just so lucky, I think. But I, I know that's not useful advice to say we were lucky, but I think it is important to recognize some of these, some events that happened. But so for us, like, you know, we were selling to these local businesses and we were pounding the pavement. Like we, we would literally walk down like streets in San Francisco and like knock on every local business's door and just be like, hey, we want to sell you this thing. Hey, we want to sell you this thing. And like, it was me and my co-founder and we'd come back to, you know, our office slash apartment at the end of the day. And it'd be like, okay, like how did your deals go? How did my deals go? And eventually we're like, hey, this is kind of like what a CRM is for, right? Like we had heard, vaguely heard these, you know, this term CRM. And so we, we tried Salesforce and it was like awful for like two people trying to like run a small business, like Salesforce is not the product for you. And so we, we were just shocked that that was kind of the state of the art and like everyone used it. And so instead we just did a shared Google spreadsheet and we really liked it because we got to define the schema. Like you get to define what each row means. You get to define what each column means. It's like you define the products that you want to build. But the only problem is we, you know, after we found the pavement, we would, you know, email these small businesses and we'd be doing all our sales over email. And then we're like copying shit back and forth between email and spreadsheets. And, and then it gets out of sync and then you don't trust the spreadsheet anymore. And then each of us just relied on our inbox. And so it was a complete mess. So basically the idea came from that. But the part that we got lucky with was when we, shared that idea with PG, it was, you know, we basically said, Hey, we, we think there's something here for the sales use case, but like integrated into email, we think there's something there. And he's like, Oh, let me show you this other email that I sent all the other YC founders. So he had sent an email to a bunch of YC founders saying like, Hey, what do you need most as a company? Like, what would you use most as a company as like a product that you would use most? And people started, you know, replying to him and describing all these products. But 30% of them were like, I need help doing X inside my inbox. And these are all founders. So it was like, I need help doing hiring in my inbox. I need help doing sales in my inbox. I need help doing fundraising. Like it was all these founder use cases and they were doing them all over email and they just needed some product to help them with that. And so that, that kind of solidified the idea for us is that, hey, like, yes, we were thinking of it as a sales CRM use case in email, but really this is like every business process goes through email. Yeah. So like, let's build that thing. It just feels like it was meant to be where you're already kind of solving this issue with your inbox and all this sales stuff. And then everyone's right. like, hey, we really need help in our inbox. And it's like, well, exactly. this isn't a sign. I don't know what it is. And, and so, right. And, and, and again, super lucky. All those people that responded, yes, like PG forwarded that email to us. And we just like, you, those were our initial customers. Like we just reached out to them. We're like, hey, this is, we're, we're building exactly this. So like, you know, uh, here it is. And so that's how we got our initial few customers too. It's one of the like most touted benefits of going through Y Combinator is that you have this giant batch of companies who all are trying to get ahead. They all need to pay for products and like they right. can be your first users, they can be your first customers. And I think right. people who are building outside of that, like if you're trying to bootstrap a company today, it's super underrated to just make friends with other founders, right. to go right. to networking events. I mean, now it's all online, but there's a ton of webinars and, and like online meetups and accountability groups and stuff like that where you can just like be friends with people and those people are trying yeah. to start stuff and they have money like they will pay you they could be your first customers and it's much easier yeah. to do that than it is for like your first contact with customers to be like attempting to launch on product hunt no one's ever heard of right. you and no one's going to support you right. up or you like, no, one cares. no idea who yeah. you are yeah no one cares right. yeah I, I wonder if that's 
That's interesting, actually. I, w- I wonder if it's like there's something to being part of some community that helps breed startups, like either like a university community where like your first users are your like classmates or something like YC where your first users are your batchmates or like you happen to live in Silicon Valley and like all your friends that you hang out with are also yeah. techies. And so they become your first users. Like I wonder if there's or you're something uh, about, part like, of like the PayPal, PayPal mafia or something like you're part of a startup yeah. and everyone there starts companies. Yeah, exactly. Like I wonder if that's like a hidden advantage for some of these communities, why these communities produce so many startups is because it, and it's not just YC. It's like any, it, maybe it could be almost any community that, that you can leverage to being your first set of users. I think it's super useful. I think it's, we're just social creatures. We look like we look right. for inspiration among like our tribes and the people around us. And if like you're in a tribe of people who aren't really that motivated and they're not starting anything and they're not really right. working hard at anything, you don't feel like like you're gonna feel less motivated. You're gonna feel kind of dumb about what you're doing. Whereas if you're like going through Y Combinator, which is literally right. the polar opposite end of the spectrum, right. and it's like you're gonna right. suddenly feel like a crazy amount of energy to do a bunch of stuff you probably would never do. I mean, you're literally a computer programmer walking around the streets of San Francisco, knocking on doors. How many right, software right. developers like anywhere on right. else or else on earth are really doing that? And I also feel bad right. for restaurants and storefronts in SF because God, how many, how many, <laughs> yeah. how many phone how many calls have like, they been pitched? Yeah. I'm in Seattle. I lived in SF for 10 years. You walk into any restaurant in SF and they've got like 15 different gadgets on their <laughs> counter from right, startups right, who right. pitch them some random stuff. Right, right, right. Yeah, actually, I think, I think you're exactly right. Being, being around people that are like, maybe just one step ahead of you, but still your peer group is probably the best motivation. Cause you kind of like look at your peers and you're like, Oh man, like I want to be like that. And they're doing really well. And I, I need to catch up to them. And you know, at YC, there's definitely like, you know, they, they don't really tout this, but there is definitely some social pressure, right? Like every Tuesday, you get together with all the batchmates and what's everyone talking about. They're talking about like the shit they got done in the last week. And you're like, okay, I don't want to go to another dinner and not have anything to say, you know, I'm getting shit done this week to make sure that I have something to say on Tuesday. You know? like, <laughs> um, yeah, there's definitely, and it's not like a, um, it's not like the, 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 you know, YC itself puts that pressure on you, but, but like they, they set up the environment where, where exactly. for sure, like you want to talk about progress. Yeah, that's exactly it. And whatever environment you're in, like, that's what you're going to care about. If you were, you know, part of like the rich housewives of LA, you're going to be looking at like lots of plastic surgery and who can live the most fabulous life. And like, that's going to seem the most meaningful. And if you're going to these YC right. dinners every Tuesday and it's like, whose company is growing the fastest, like you don't want to be right. embarrassed and be at the bottom of the list. So I, I think right. that uh, right. trying to figure out this good social group for yourself is extremely important, but also, I think I, you know, I, I think I got lucky with that. Like, um, I, yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to like name drop or anything, but like when I said grad school earlier, I, I went to I went to Harvard Business School as as my grad school because I wanted to try these different businesses. And as an engineer going into a business school, you're kind of like you're you're kind of suspicious, right? You're like suspicious of this set of people. They're all going to be like finance people or consulting people, and like they're just there to party and they're not really learning anything or whatever. And so I was like highly suspicious going in. But the, it was actually an amazing experience for me, like ignoring the academics and, and you know, we can talk about it more later, but, but ignoring the academics, like the people that were all there, what surprised me was like, they weren't necessarily like smart in the classical sense. Like, you know, engineers have this, like, you know, they, they, they love being rational and logical and they love like mm-hmm. this idea of being smart. And so, you know, the people at this business school would not have met their definition of like being smart. But the thing I learned from them is that they're just incredibly hungry incredibly driven and you know you you look at you look at these people and they're they're not any smarter than you know anybody else 
yet they're doing some incredibly ambitious things and and they work incredibly hard. And th- I would say that's the thing I learned the most at sort of business school. Like I, I had a classmate who in his second year in business school raised $50 million for a company he started, you know, at, at business school and the company was doing like sort of e-commerce in Brazil. Had he ever been to Brazil? No. Did he know the language? No. But what did he do? He flew down there on weekends. He set up a warehouse. He like hired a bunch of people and he raised money. He bought a good domain name and he parlayed that into more and more success. And he did that in like the last 12 months of his time at, at business school. Crazy. He ended up, you know, raising $50 million for this company that like, no, I don't think your typical engineer would think of doing that. Right, would think would think that that's possible, or think that they could do it, or just seeing that really like kind of transformed my thinking as it. So, how did how did you approach starting this new company in the very beginning, having had all this inspiration from these crazy hustlers at business right. school, and right. having had gone through the sort of like failed knocking on restaurant doors and trying to sell them a product? Like, what was your first step with your new product, your new idea, streak to build something in the inbox? Right. Well, we knew we had to talk to users. I think a failure mode that we had in the first company, like so, the first company was like loyalty points by a credit card, and so like you spend on your credit card and you get points automatically. You don't have to scan anything or any BS like that. And we thought like, oh, loyalty points are great. You get free shit. Like, who's not going to want free stuff? Like, everybody wants free stuff, right? Like, everybody wants a free sandwich or free coffee or whatever. And so all we have to do is like sell the businesses, and then we're good. And so we sold the businesses, but like it turns out like the consumers didn't actually want it, right? Like if you ask a consumer and you're like, hey, like, do you want a free coffee? They're like, yeah, sure. But like, do they want it enough to tell their friends about it? Do they want it enough to like put up with the bugs in your app? Do they want it enough to like even download your app and connect their bank account? Like, no, they don't. And so we didn't want to make that mistake again with the second product. And so, yeah, we got our initial users through YC and we would just basically like talk to them. You know, we'd build something, show it to them, talk to them, build something else, like just take their feedback and just build it. And um, that helped us a ton. And to your point earlier about like, you know, pushing versus pulling, like once we had the sort of product built out, we had a lot of pull. Users were telling other users about it a lot. And so like for us, it was mostly about getting on the phone with them, the people that, that heard about us and wanted us, getting on the phone with them, and like making sure that we were the right fit, making sure like we knew what they were trying to use it for. So yeah, you can definitely feel when you're onto something versus when you're not onto something. And who is we at this point? I mean, you've got a, a co-founder? Yeah, it was a co-founder of mine. Um, you know, we had kept in touch since college and I told him like, hey, I'm thinking of leaving business school and starting a company. And he was actually working on his first company. So he actually had some startup experience, which is great. And that helped us a ton too. And he was actually just exiting that company. And so the timing was just like super fortuitous. Like... I kind of hate saying that we were lucky because it's not useful advice for people. But I think maybe the the thing to take away there is just like kind of keep in touch with your friends and, you know, talk about what you're working on and talk about your interests and talk about your, yeah, your goals. I think that's exactly it. People talk about making your own luck. Uh, how do you make it so like the universe just seems to open up its arms and, and just provide you the exact person or help that you need at the right time? And the secret is you just constantly do what you're saying. You broadcast what you're working on. You broadcast your challenges, your goals, what you're trying to do. And that's the only way people are going to know how to help you. Yeah. And I think that goes back to our earlier discussion of of like the 18-month company versus the like decade company. If you're building an 18-month company, you have to be like, you don't have time for any of that or you don't have time to build relationships over a long term. And so like, you're just hoping that you're hyped enough to like attract all the people that can help you versus like, you know, for us, for example, our head of engineering, I met in our YC batch. And it took me five years to like, he was a friend for five years before he became 
our head of engineering, right? Like, so you could say like, oh, it took me five years to recruit him. And it's like, yeah, like if you're building one of these long-term companies and you have to know that you want to build a long-term company, but like the things that you do now are going to be helpful five, 10 years from now. So when did you get to the point where you realized like this was actually going to work? And it wasn't just, you know, this temporary excitement from having the first few customers in the door, but it was a long-term business idea that you wanted to stick with. Right. When people started telling other people about it is kind of when I figured like, hey, we're onto something. Like, you know, always in the back of your head when you're starting a new company, you're kind of like, oh, like if this doesn't work, like I wonder what else I could pivot to. And like when people started telling other people about it, then that kind of thought in the back of my head kind of went away. I was like, oh, no, no, this is a thing. This is a real thing. Like if people are willing to tell other people about it, that means they're finding value in it. And so that, that's when I kind of knew it was working. And then just getting on the phone with them, we started doing pricing discussions because, you know, as I talked about, we were free for a while. Once we started doing pricing discussions, that was another sort of proof point for me. Give me like a snapshot of what this actually looks like. Because I think a lot of founders are, are good at like the code part. They're building the product. Right. They're like making something take shape. You know, maybe right. they see people signing up or whatever, but like you keep talking about getting on the phone with people and like having right. these conversations. How are you actually convincing your customers to get on the phone with you? And, and who were these customers? So initially, because people were telling other people, people would sign up on our website or they would discover us in the Chrome Web Store because extension Streak is an extension built into Gmail. And so the way you install that extension is you go to the Chrome Web Store and it's an app store. And back then, there weren't a lot of apps in there. And so a lot of people would discover us there. And so that was a little bit of fortuitous timing as well. And so they would discover us and then they would write in uh, into our email support. We only had email support. And they would write in questions like, hey, how do I do X? Like, how do I take meeting notes? Or I'm, I'm getting on a call with a customer and I'm using your product as a CRM. How do I take call notes? And we're like, oh, we didn't know people did that. Okay, let me email this person back and be like, hey, we don't have that right now. Or you could do this weird workaround. Like you could, you know, take notes in a Google Doc and then just like link it into the CRM. But like, can I talk to you about that use case? And basically we'd hear that kind of use case enough and we'd be like, okay, time to build it, right? And so like maybe the first time you email them back and learn a little bit more and you kind of like bank it. And then you hear it a second time, a third time. And then that becomes like, okay, this is something that people really want. We got to build this and like to make sure we're building it right. Let's like talk to them first to make sure we're not building, you know, the wrong thing. We weren't trained salespeople. We did sales for three months. So we kind of knew the basics, but we didn't know enough of the space to just like build it off of our own knowledge. And so we definitely had to talk to other people. And it's so strange to enter an industry where you're not the expert. You didn't work at Salesforce. Nope. You don't know what people who use CRMs really need. And so you're kind of just winging it. But uh, on the flip side, you're solving your own problem. So you kind of know what like you need and that'll get you a little bit of the way there. Contrary to popular belief, it's not going to get you all the way there. There aren't 100 million people who are exactly like you. And it turns out if you want to grow, you've got to actually listen to this feedback and figure out what other people want. This word of mouth thing is also pretty interesting where you have people telling people about your product. And I think the common wisdom is to get word of mouth growth, what you do is you have to build something that's 10 times better than what everybody else has. It's got to be so much better that when people use it, they don't just you know continue using it happily, but they continue using it and telling everybody else how great it is. Uh, right. And that's where word of mouth growth comes from. Based on someone who's actually been in this position and people were spreading your product yeah. through word of mouth, how true is that? And are there other factors that contribute to people sharing what you're doing? I think it's definitely true for us because I think there's a caveat to it. Like we were 10x better in one area. In a bunch of other areas, we were actually 10x worse. Like we were really bad at most things. But in this one specific area, our Gmail integration, how deeply we integrated with the UI of Gmail and the backend of Gmail that experience was kind of sublime. It's kind of more common now, but back then it was kind of a revelation to see that like, oh, the place that I'm doing all my work, my email, is also the place where I'm tracking all my work. 
that part of it was definitely 10x better. And so when people emailed us, they're like, hey, like we love the product. We're totally sold on the Gmail thing. But like, you can't even take notes, you know, you can't make, you know, date column. I can't record a dollar amount and you have no support for currencies. Like, how am I supposed to use you as a CRM? And then we're like, you know, a lot of those things we still haven't done to this day because like, it's more important to be the 10x better. And yeah. the way I think about it is like, that's the first phase of product development is like that 10x better phase. Then the next phase is like getting all the rest of the stuff to just like meet a minimum bar. And so we spent a long time like CRM is kind of a product where it, there's just so many things, there's like so many features that people expect. And I think email clients are kind of like this as well, that like on so, like building an email client is so hard because there's just like so many features that people just like depend on. Like, oh, I need to mute threads. I need to have email signatures. I need to have, you know, like all these things, multiple inboxes, split panes. And, and so like to even build an email client with your one unique insight, you have to build like all these other features just to get people to use it. And so we spent a lot of time after building that 10x feature, just getting decent at like all the other stuff. At what point did you decide that you don't want to try to be a billion dollar company and that <laughs> actually just charging people money for this 10x better product right. is a much better right. path? I would like to say that we were like super thoughtful and smart about it. It wasn't like a purposeful decision, right? It was like, hey, we're growing at a fast clip and we're starting to charge money and we're profitable. And so there's no huge need to raise money, but maybe we should do it for defense. Like, but that's what most companies do when they're on this billion dollar track, they raise money. And so like, maybe we should do that. And so, you know, we tested the waters a little bit and like, we could have raised money. It would have been a slog. It would have been not on the greatest terms. And like, we looked at that and we're like, oh man, that's gonna be six months of pain to raise this money. And for money that actually we can't even, what would we even do with? It would sit in our bank account because we're not money constrained right now. Like there's nothing that we want to do where we're like, oh, we don't have enough money to do that. And we have no pressure. We're not like going to die because we're profitable. So like, why are we going to go through this pain of raising all this money and get like not great terms? Like what's the reason? And so we basically just kept pushing it off. We're like, hey, is now the right time? Nope, we're profitable. We still have money and we can do whatever we want with the money we have. Okay, so maybe in six months, we'll try again. And like, we kept pushing that decision forward and forward and forward. And like, it basically never came to a point where we needed to raise. And so I'd like to say it was like some master plan, but it definitely wasn't. Was there a moment where you just accepted, you know what, this is never going to happen? Well, I mean, if you ask me today, like, I think there's still a chance that we go raise money. It wouldn't be the type of money that we would have raised, you know, one year in like a series A round or something like that. Like if we were to go raise money now, it's more likely to be like a growth round or something like that. But I'm not like philosophical, like I'm not... Um, philosophically opposed to any of these yeah. ideas, right? This idea of never raising money or this idea of, oh, you must raise money. Like I don't buy into the philosophies behind those. I just am pragmatic about it, right? Like if we could use money to help reach some more goals, then great, we'll do that. And if we don't need it, then we won't do that. It's like, yeah. It's the reasonable mindset. And people don't want to hear a reasonable mindset. They want the extreme. They want like the... Yeah, it doesn't make headlines. Yeah, yeah it doesn't make headlines. But I think it's becoming more common there are like more investors nowadays who are figuring out ways to profitably invest in these sort of slower growth indie hacker companies. Sure. And there are also, sure. I think, there's compared to when you started Streak and when I was in YC in 2011, there's also just much more understanding in the sort of high growth investor community of like building a business that's profitable where you actually right. charge money. So I feel like both sides right. are sort of converging on this reasonable center, which is like, yeah, evaluate your options, try to build a business that has good business fundamentals uh, right. and go from there. There's no, it's not as religious as it used to be. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, like if you're not providing value to users, like all of this is for moot anyways, like all of this is moot anyways. And if you are providing value to users, 
all this is also moot because it'll be obvious what to do. It's kind of like the only reasonable advice is like build something valuable and like yeah. it'll be easy to make decisions after that. And by the way, some of these companies that, you know, slower but growing profitable businesses become juggernauts, right? Like after many years, they compound, right? Like Atlassian, like what? They didn't raise a dollar for the first like 10 years or something, right? And then they raised, you know, Sequoia money and then IPO'd or whatever. And so like, I don't think it's ever the case that doors are closed to you just because you've taken an approach in the past. Yeah. I had Jason Cohen on the podcast who's sort of like a bootstrapping hero. And he bootstrapped three or four companies to over a million dollars in revenue. And then his last one, it was doing the same thing, same trajectory. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to go for the gold. He hired a CEO. He raised a ton of money. And now he's doing something like two or three hundred million dollars in revenue. It's crazy. Amazing. But, Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you can take any path you want. You can bootstrap and then fundraise. You could fundraise and then never raise again and just sort of right. you know, live off your profits. Right. Uh, right. You can start different companies and do different paths. What's striking right. to me about your particular story is that you almost followed like what today is like the bootstrapper playbook. You pick an idea yeah. <laughs> where there's like a proven sort of track record of like companies are making money in this space and it's kind of boring. Right. It's kind of straightforward. You know, it's CRMs, they already exist, but like you're not trying to enter some sort of winner take all social networking market or something like that. Yep. You're just trying to like create a business. And then right. in order to compete with everybody, instead of like targeting their customers, you niche down and you pick a really specific use case, which in your situation was the email inbox. Founders. Exactly. Email inbox founders. And so ultimately like, yeah, as you said, you're 10 times better in this very narrow scope and you're 10 times worse in every other scope, but it doesn't matter to you because you're a fledgling company. Like, you don't care if you're only making a, you know, a few dollars, you're just getting started. Right. Do you remember like your very first sale, the very first time anyone actually paid you for Streak? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So we weren't charging for the longest time and we kind of decided like, hey, we should probably start charging money just because you know, at some point we like, we need, we need to have income. And like, actually it was, it was more being afraid of like our previous experience with a previous company where like actually people didn't really want it. And so we were worried that like, Hey, it's free now and people are using it cause it's free. But if it was paid, people would never use it. And so like, we want to, mm. we want to just double check that. But again, we didn't want to build a billing system or pricing page or anything like that. We were lazy. And so we just like called one of our biggest customers, which was Uber at the time had like, I think like 50 users using us or something. And we were basically like, hey, it's kind of time to pay. And we figured like this would be the easiest sale because they had tons of money. This would be the easiest and tons of usage of the product. So we're like, hey, you know, it's kind of time to pay. I remember the, the guy on the phone was basically like, we're not paying you already. Like we don't already <laughs> pay for this product. And I'm like, no, it's, it's free. And he's like, I can't believe we're depending on your product, which is not paid. We're not paying you any money. I don't know what kind of support we're getting. I don't know if you're going to be around in six months, but we use your product for like a critical part of our business. I can't believe we're not paying you. And so that was the easiest sale ever because they like really wanted to pay. And so he's like, how much is it? And I just made up a number. I said $10 a user a month. And he's like, okay, done, hang up. Like that was it. And so that was the first sale. And so the next call sort of did the same thing. And you know, they said, what is the price? And I said, oh, it's $20 a user a month. And they're like, okay, done, hang up. And you know, I basically just kept doing these phone calls and kept raising the price by 10 bucks until somebody said, uh, that seems a little like, like as soon as I got a little yeah. bit of pushback, I was like, okay, that's the right price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did the same thing with um, indie hackers when I had sponsorships back when I first launched the site. I had a list of basically, okay, these are my dream sponsors. These are people who've interacted right. with indie hackers before. I'm going to go through right. one at a time and just like email them and call them and just like say a price. Right. But I went yeah. backwards. So like my dream like sponsor is actually Stripe and they're at the very bottom of my list. So I was like, okay, I want to talk to them last after I perfected right. everything. But you went after right. like the juggernaut immediately. Well, I just wanted somebody that was like going to say yes. We could see their usage internally. And so like we knew that they were 
depending on the product. And so like, I just wanted to get to a yes. And I think that like a lot of startups is like kind of just building momentum and like, it felt good to have that first sale, that second sale and kind of just like built up some momentum. And then even later, if we got some pushback on the pricing, like that didn't feel bad because we sort of built up this momentum. Yeah, you locked in those yeses. I, I should have done yeah. it that way because I got a lot of no's at first. <laughs> it's pretty discouraging when right. it's like, no, 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 we can't afford it. Nope, sorry. Yeah, it's all momentum based. So at this point, you're charging for your product. You've got some money in the bank. You've got Uber using you. And you know you're actually building something that people care about, which I think is, is worth actually diving into for a second because you mentioned earlier with like your sort of loyalty program thing you're working on. People told you they would pay for it, but they didn't care that much. It wasn't like, you know, if your thing goes down, people are going to be in tears on the street because their life is ruined. Like, no one really cared. It's kind of like this unessential thing. Whereas what you're doing with Streak was very mission critical. Uber is using it. They're concerned that if your company goes out of business, they're going to be screwed because like so much of their data is in what you're doing. And I think a lot of founders have trouble with this when they're first trying to figure out what to work on. Like, well, I don't have a big team. I'm real small. Like, can I build something important and mission critical? Like, no, I don't trust myself to be able to do that. You know, I'm too small. I can't compete. So I've got to go build something that solves like a really small, simple problem that's really cheap and people will pay for it. You know, I'm just not big enough to really try to go after an important problem. From your perspective as somebody who's done both of these approaches, what would you say to a founder who's convincing themselves of that right at the beginning? Oh, man. Based on our experience, again, this is only our experience, but like when we had something free, it was harder to sell than when we had something that was paid for. Actually, it was better than free. We would give you free stuff. We would give you coffees and sandwiches. And, you know, we'd give you free stuff and we couldn't get people to pay attention. And it's because like, that's not the thing that's on their mind every day. They don't think like in the morning, they don't wake up and go, hmm, how am I going to get my free coffee today? Like, I really got to think, be thoughtful about the tools I use to get my free coffee. It's like, no, they don't give a shit. But for us, when like a sales manager wakes up, they are thinking about, hey, my sales team, like I need to know if they're doing well, like, you know, we're paying them a lot of money. I need to organize our deals. I want to look at all of my team's deals and see what's going on with them. Like it's a really important thing for them because they're thinking about it all the time. Mm -hmm. Like when they're in the shower in the morning, what are they worried about? Like what's the critical piece of their job? A sales manager is like, you know, am I going to hit my quota this quarter? And like, that's the thing they think about in the morning. So giving them something that takes away that pain or takes away that worry is like so much easier because it's on their mind. It's like at the forefront of their mind. So I think maybe the generalizable advice is find the type of person who has some, like know what this persona has at the forefront of their mind, what's their biggest pain, and then like make something that makes them feel less stressed. Like do that and there'll be some pull. Now, obviously that's easier said than done. The hard part is like knowing the persona, knowing what makes them stressed, knowing their problems, knowing you know, their motivations and their incentives and that kind of stuff. And so, again, I guess that goes back to talking to people. That's so unintuitive, especially if it's your first time starting a business. Like, people don't buy things because they're cheap. They buy things because they're valuable. And, you know, I could probably sell you a $10,000 car way easier than I could sell you my $10 pair of socks. And the people who aren't aware of this don't spend a lot of time thinking about, like, okay, what do my customers find valuable? What's the most important thing on their list? You know, they instead get stuck trying to lower their prices right. and maybe that'll get people to buy or trying to add a bunch right. of random features and maybe that'll get people to buy and right. it, just, it doesn't work. There is always that temptation to just like start building something. And like as an engineer, like I totally feel that even today, right? At Streak, we're like working on a new product that's going to be integrated to Streak. But, but like my first temptation was like, oh, let me just like mock this out and like, let's get the team to build it. And like, we're good. And that was like my first instinct. And even then, I think I'm probably the most qualified person to take that approach because I've been talking to these users for eight years, even still I'm doubting myself. And so like I had to hold back and like, let me do 10 user interviews before I actually like 
spec something out or mock something up. Just let me just like make sure, right? Yeah. And honestly, I don't think it's that bad to like build a few features to test the waters a little bit, but definitely like time boxing, right? Like the worst thing to do is to go for six months just building stuff that nobody's using, right? I would say like a couple of weeks, build something enough to get like a conversation going with something. This is actually a great conversation starter, right? To be able to send like a little feature or a little toy or whatever you built to a prospective customer and be like, hey, I built this small thing. I know it's not everything that you would want, but like, what's your feedback? Like, what do you think about it? I think that's an easier way to talk to people because most people like don't answer your cold emails. It's also, I think, becoming more common for people to kind of build these really small MVP-ish things. In part because, number one, there are more people who are developers who can just do it, but also because it's been kind of this rise of like no-code and low-code tools where you can like whip out a landing page or a mock-up or a concept of a feature using like Zapier or something right. in almost no time. Right. Like I meet indie hackers all the time who are like, yeah, I built this thing and I'm like, oh, this is incredibly impressive. How does it work? And they're like, oh, it's just like all these things I stitched together in the back end. It's going to fall apart. It's like held together by duct tape. Right. It's like going to fall apart at the lightest breeze, right. but like I built it in a day and you can go and show that to people. I know there's a lot of hype around the no-code thing and I think there is something to it, exactly the reason you're describing, which is like, it's a great sales tool. It makes you seem like bigger than you are. To, the, to your point earlier, like how is somebody going to take me seriously? I'm just one developer. But if you use like Webflow and a good template off Webflow and hack some stuff together using Zapier, like there's almost no difference between what a customer would see <laughs> Like between you, a single developer in your basement and like a team of 20, right? Like it looks roughly the same, you know, uh, on first blush. And so like you can kind of fake it till you make it, you know, like there used to be stories of like startups who would, you know, hire a bunch of people off Craigslist to just come into the office and like sit in desks and pretend they were employees (laughs) when a big sales meeting happened on site just to make them look bigger. But I guess like no code is maybe the new way of making yourself look bigger than you actually are. So I think it's great from that perspective, but I um, don't buy into the hype that like this is going to be the way we build apps in the future. Like maybe some internal tooling is useful, but even then, one of the companies that I'd love to plug is, is Retool, and they're a low-code platform for internal tools. That I think is the right model, right? The customer is internal people who have sort of a lower like I wouldn't say quality bar, but like design or aesthetic bar, and you still code a little bit. There is still JavaScript in there and it's actually meant for engineers to build, but it just amplifies their efforts. And that's the way I see this low code versus no code thing. Like I'm not a huge believer that the no code thing will like replace how we build apps. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Ali Mawani, no code hater. <laughs> He's a doubter. <laughs> Honestly, I tried a side project using nothing but no code. And like there was a surprising amount of code in no code. Even if it doesn't look like coding, you're coding. Like You're using their drag and drop builders and building if statements and stuff like that. Like it's coding. Of course. You want to put your own logic in there. You want to react differently to different situations and have loops and repeat things. And eventually, you're just a coder using kind of shitty coding tools. <laughs> exactly. But maybe what will happen is it'll get people more comfortable with coding. Once they realize that what you're doing yeah. is actually kind of coding. Yeah. Uh, and then we actually like take a tutorial for learning how to code. Right. Some of these concepts now seem familiar because you've done them in no code. Right. Uh, you'll be more willing to sort of take the leap and go further. I think the tool that's already done that is like spreadsheets, like Excel and Google Sheets has already made programmers out of millions of people that don't even know they're programmers. And and the problem is they can't make the jump from sheets to like coding because spreadsheets are like a functional language and most beginner coding tutorials or whatever are all like imperative. And so it seems like, and there's all these like environments that you have to set up and stuff like that. Whereas like a spreadsheet, you just open it and start coding. 
And that's why I'm like a huge, huge believer of things like uh, Darklang or, you know, Repl.it, uh, like those kind of platforms that if you can take a spreadsheet coder and make them like a regular coder, like that's the big opportunity. I think. I've taught a few people to code, uh, just friends and family. And the biggest hurdle is always the environment. Right. It's always like, it takes them like hours just to get to the point where they can write any code somewhere where it's actually going to run. Are they writing in like random box on this website that like doesn't correspond to like where they write it in real life? Right, like just right. getting their computer and their environment set up to be able to actually like compile or interpret code is just like a huge hurdle and people give up because it's, it doesn't seem worth it. Yeah, if you think about it, like spreadsheets, it's like the ultimate programming environment. No setup. You see all the intermediate values at all times. Your program is always running. It's easy to debug because you can see the state throughout the whole thing. And you type the code into the place where the interface is. Like, it's not like type it into a text file and then see the web page somewhere else. It's like, it's all in one environment. Yeah, it's like the ultimate programming environment. So I'm not surprised that it has like millions of programmers. All right. So if you're listening and looking for a business idea, I think uh, teaching people to code is always lucrative. People pay thousands of dollars to learn how to do it. The number of ways to teach people to code is pretty much infinite because people have different learning styles. And so if you want to take Aleem's spreadsheet idea and run with it, then uh, you should go for it. Give them a cut. <laughs> With your particular product streak, you know, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't remark on the technical challenges that you faced mm. because I also build products in the inbox right. and it's not easy. You have a lot of platform risk specifically because you're building the CRM that is directly integrated into Gmail. And like Gmail did not have an API for modifying their user interface. They weren't like, oh yeah, we support this. This is fine. They're randomly, and I know this from like my experience, they're randomly just changing their interface all the time without any sort of warning. They'll deploy tests on some users where some people will have you know, their inbox tab move to the left or some people get the new features and some people don't. Right. And you as a developer trying to build on top of all this can be kind of blind. Like you have no idea why your app is breaking for some people and not for other people. Right. And you know, at least if you're anything like me, I always had like this fear in the back of my mind that like if I keep building on top of Gmail, right. they're gonna shut uh, us down. one day they're going to flip some switch and I'm screwed. And my whole company is done. Did you not worry about that? Yeah, I mean, it was the 10x feature that made users want us but it was also the biggest risk in our company. We got that same sort of pushback from investors. We got it from, you know, potential employees. We got it from, you know, just like customers, like even customers, because our customers were actually technically savvy. They were always worried that like streak wouldn't exist in six months or whatever. So actually that's one area where we did actually, and the no code thing would not have helped us here at all. We did have to invest a lot of technical effort to prove that model out and prove that like we could be resilient to Gmail changes. So not only did we want to show that like, hey, we can build a complete app inside of Gmail, we also wanted to show that irregardless of how Gmail changes their implementation, we're still okay. And and so we built a bunch of systems that made that possible. So we had systems that like monitored Gmail's DOM to make sure that like everything was where we expected it. And if something wasn't where we expected, then like it would alert us and we would go look into it like hey is gmail rolling something out because like gmail rolls things out slowly and so like maybe one percent of our users would see the slightly weirder dom and we want to make sure that like we're still compatible with that and so we had all these tools and systems and automated testing in place to like make sure that you know that was super solid and all that technology that knew how to deal with Gmail, we actually opened it up. We opened it up for other developers to, if you want to build, if now you want to build an app on Gmail and you don't want to go through the same worries that we had to and go through the same Herculean effort that we had to in, in dealing with Gmail, you know, we have an SDK that lets you program against high-level APIs and then we handle all that stuff dealing with Gmail. We react when Gmail changes and all that kind of stuff. And so, but yeah, back in the day, it was a big risk. 
one thing that helped the risk as well was that like I worked at Google. And so like I kind of knew the people that were on the Gmail team. And so like I knew it. I always wanted to ask you, like, how many people did you know at Gmail? Because this is like it's inordinately stressful. Yeah, I knew a few engineers on the team. I knew a new a few product managers on the team. And and like of course they couldn't officially endorse it. They were like, hey, here's our two-year roadmap and we don't think we're gonna change these parts of it or whatever. And so that gave me a little bit of comfort. But the thing that gave me the most comfort was when they actually said, here's my two-year roadmap, the time it would take them to deliver that two-year roadmap was actually like five years. And so like <laughs> Gmail, it's a great platform to build on because it has a billion and a half users, but it's such a slow-moving platform that I'm not worried that Gmail is going to keep changing stuff to like uh, that would affect us. Yeah. Like We're way faster than they are. You know, When they change something, we react in a few hours. And for them to change something takes them years. And so like it's not a huge, huge deal. A lot of people today starting startups are dealing with this issue of platform risk. Maybe not you know, code-based platform risk, but more like distribution-based. You know, If I start my blog on Medium or Substack, you know, am I going to be locked into that? If I start on YouTube, like, am I at basically the whims of YouTube? How do you think about you know, de-risking that? Or, or did you just 100% go, you know, we're all in on Gmail. If we're dead, right. we're dead, but we don't right. care about the risk. So what's interesting is that, like, yes, our product lived in Gmail, but our distribution didn't come from Gmail. Our distribution came from the Chrome Web Store. And so that was the only place you could find us before was in the Chrome Web Store. And it was great because, you know, not a lot of competition, like I said, and we were getting tons of installs from there. But that distribution channel was like an arbitrage, like a lot of traffic for not a lot of people knowing about it. But these arbitrages, they disappear. And so like, you know, over time, we went from having 90% of our traffic come from the Chrome Web Store to 10% of our traffic coming from the Chrome Web Store. And so I think for other founders, like, Take like take advantage of these weird distribution opportunities, but make sure that like your product is agnostic of where the distribution comes from, right? Like you could switch to another distribution channel, but it's still useful to build on Medium or Substack or whatever when there are these weird arbitrages. But eventually, you got to build your own. Like now, people like ninety percent of our traffic comes direct. Like we don't do marketing, open mm. marketing or anything. It comes direct because we've built a user base that knows about us, that likes us, and tells their friends about us. And so now we have it in our control. But there was a time when, when like, you know, if the Chrome Web Store turned us off, we would have been dead. When you're looking at those numbers falling, what are you thinking? Like, how do you model that process in your head of like, oh, shit, this distribution channel might not work forever. And right. you're not quite sure which ones to explore. But the writing was on the wall, right? Like or the Chrome Web Store first launched. Anytime you were in the Chrome browser and you pressed the new tab page, there was a giant link for the Chrome Web Store. And, and you had 300 million people using Chrome. So like, Obviously, there's going to be a ton of traffic to that thing. And you go to the Chrome store and there's like 20 apps and they're all shit. And so we're like, okay, this is not going to last. People are going to see this that like, you know, this is not going to last. And so like we can use it to like build up our user base. But really, mm. if like we need to find other distribution channels. And for us, the distribution channel was just like word of mouth because we saw that even though our Chrome Web Store traffic was going down, our overall traffic was going up. And, you know, we started asking, where is this traffic coming from? And it was all people recommending other people. And they were like, okay, we're not worried anymore. Crazy. That's such a good good channel to have word of mouth because it's, it's the one thing that'll last even if everything else goes away. Even if you never find a replacement for the Chrome Web Store, even if you never like hit on like influencer marketing or uh, become an expert at SEO, like if your users keep telling other users and they're churning less often than they're recommending other people, right. and that's just an engine for like indefinite permanent growth. And you don't really have to invest a lot of money in marketing and, and growth and getting bigger. Agreed, 100%. So where's Streak at today? I mean, obviously you're you're up to thirty people. You're, you're generating millions in revenue. What's at the top of your mind? What are some like recent things you've been working on? It's kind of crazy. We've been working on stuff that's like been a problem 
that our users have told us were problems for like years. And we kind of never had a good solution in mind up until very recently. And we launched that two months ago, basically. Uh, we call it Streak 3. It's like a third major version of the Streak product. And it's stuff we've wanted to do for like literally six years and haven't either had the technology or haven't really understood the product well enough or understand our users well enough. And we finally got around to doing it. So like, we're still working on things that are like pretty fundamental. It's not just, and that's what I mean about these sort of longer term companies, right? Like it's important that like, we're still start solving hard problems because our team, that's what we enjoy doing, right? And so like, uh, there's still plenty of those problems left. Uh, in terms of goals, like we want to, you know, expand our product suite. We want to offer new products. It is kind of cool to be working on new products while having existing products because an existing product, making sure that 10x part is 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 still really solid. You're making sure all the other features that you have to be table stakes at, you're getting all those done. So we get to do a little bit of that kind of product development. We also get to do early stage product development where it's, um, hey, we know nothing. We know nothing about the problem. We want to talk to a bunch of users. We're going to build something really small first. We're going to see how that works. Uh, we're going to think about how we're going to do distribution. Even though it's like a single company, I feel like uh, like larger companies, we're starting to offer multiple products. And that, that lets you have a way of keeping things fresh and not boring. You've been around for close to 10 years now. And I think rebuilding your product from the ground up is exactly what they warn you against doing as a developer. It's like one of the 10 developer commandments. So how do you get away with that? And what's your rationale? Uh, our users, I mean, they just tell us like, hey, this thing sucks about your product. And like, it could be way better if it worked this way. And the way they wanted it to work was fundamentally different in a certain area. And so we had to rebuild a huge part of our product. And also part of it is also packaging and marketing because like on the engineering side, it's really, really good practice to like launch features as they come, like, you know, small tweak here, launch it, small tweak here, launch it. And like as fine grained as you can, just continuously be launching. That's really good for your existing users because they see mm -hmm. the steady improvement. And it's really good for engineering because it's easier to do that kind of deployment. But it's not great for marketing because if there's a customer that hasn't seen you around or checked you out maybe a few years ago, there's no reason for them to look at you again unless there's right. some big new thing. And you can't make a mountain out of them. It's hard to make a mountain out of a molehill when like you just dripped out one small little feature and you're like, Hey, come check us out. We just did this one small little thing. And it's like, that's not really a marketing event. Like press doesn't want to pick up on you. It's not worthy of a product hunt launch. It's hard to really talk about as, as some new thing that you should check out again. But if you take all those features that you've sort of built up and launched individually, and even though they're already launched, like, you know, we launched a lot of streak three before streak three launched. And you take all those features, you bundle them all together and you say, okay, this is streak three. Now I'm going to tell the world about Street 3. It's this bundle of things and I'm going to market it. I'm going to tell people why it's new, why it's different, why it's a different product than what they may have tried in the past. Emailing a bunch of our old users and saying, hey, we have a package of things now that is fundamentally better. So yeah, that was another reason we wanted to, to make a big launch. Yeah, it's like the best of both worlds. Sort of drip out features, but then package them together in a huge launch so people don't realize that you just drift them out the whole time. And some companies do the exact opposite. Like Google drives me crazy where they'll just abandon a product for all intents and purposes. You see like nothing happened. Like I use Google Play Music for whatever reason instead of Spotify. And it's like, they just didn't improve or update this product for like seemingly years. And it turns out that behind the scenes, they're building this entirely new thing called right. YouTube Music. But as right. a user, I'm just like pissed because I'm like, well, what's happening here? You don't care about it. You're, you've abandoned it completely. Like, why am I going to keep placing faith in you when you're not even working on your own thing? You have, you know, a 
God knows how many engineers you can't spare a few to like fix these obvious bugs. Right. Like, oh no, no, no. We've got this big packaged thing coming. Don't worry. It's called YouTube music, but it's like by that time I've already left. So if you can like sort of drip them out and then, you know, make this announcement that no one has to know is really just a bunch of stuff you released like a year ago. Right. Uh, I feel like that's like the, the win-win. I think it's a good tactic for startups because like, I think users want to know that this product that they're using from this tiny company is like going to be around. And so like when they get a steady set of emails, like existing users, like we try to email our existing users at least once every two weeks with something new that happened, right? Hey, we just launched this thing. Hey, we just fixed these bugs. Hey, we just did this. Again, makes you seem bigger than you are because it gives users confidence that like you're going to be around and that you're investing in this thing. And like they made a good decision. Like, hey, maybe the product you're using right now doesn't do all the things that you want it to do. Oh, but I know that streak team, they just like crank on features. So maybe it's coming soon. I'll, I'll stick around. Like it, it helps retention. It helps so many things. If you just like advertise to your existing users, the drip, but new users, you do the package. There's a lot of, uh, I think, very common startup advice that I want to get your opinion on having actually lived through it. Some of it's older, some of it's newer. One of the older, I think, takes is that market trumps everything. I think it was Mark Andreessen who first started saying this maybe 10 years ago. Like, hey, I'll take the market over a, a team any day. You know, if you a great team, you give them a crappy market, like they're going to be dead in a few years. If you take a mediocre team, you put them in a great growing market, they're going to crush it. I, I think the market basically sets the cap, right? It sets the, the upper limit on how big the company can be. And so like you can have a great founder and a great team working on a, on a market that is capped at 10 million bucks. And they'll execute the hell out of that and get to maybe 90% of the market. And then you have the same team, same great team on a market that is maybe a $100 million market. They'll get to $90 million And like, they'll always get there. They'll always get where they're going to they're gonna go in terms of percentage of the market. And so I think for founders deciding on what market to go after, it's like, it doesn't have to be the billion dollar market. Like you can, like we've shown that you can be very profitable and grow very well in like a $10 million market. And you just have to set your expectations that like, I'm going to execute well, I'm going to make a $5 million a year business. That's what I want. I'm happy with that. Or no, 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 I want, you know, the $100 million business and I want there to be more competition and I'm happy to go against that competition or whatever and execute there. I I think both can be successful. It's kind of a non-answer, but both can be successful depending on like what you want. Like you don't have to go after the big market. You just have to do well in whatever you're going after. And nowadays, because everything's global, like every market's big enough to have a great life. Like if you're successful in software now, it almost doesn't matter the size of the market because every market's big enough for you to have a great life. How important do you think it is to be early to the market and be one of the first players doing the particular thing that you're doing? I don't think it's that important. If another CRM came along that was in Gmail, I think they would do great. Because the markets are just so big now. The market for all these, there can be multiple players and you can just carve your niche infinitely narrow to do so well in that niche. Yeah, Gmail is like what, 20, 30% of like the email market? Yeah, billion and a half millions users. of users. Billion and a half users, nuts. And like Streak certainly doesn't have a billion, and a, a billion and a half users. A lot of space there. Right, nor would we want it. Yeah. What do you think about this sort of new mantra of building an audience before you start a business? You know, back in the day, everyone just kind of just leapt in and created stuff. Nowadays, a lot of people, even developers, are saying, I'm not going to code anything. I'm going to write or I'm going to teach or I'm going to build up a Twitter following or build up an email list. And then once I have an audience of people, I'm going to then figure out what I'm going to launch. I think it's great that there's another new distribution channel that exists that didn't exist before. Uh, it's, it's always been hard to like get attention, right? Like That's never going to change. It's never going to change that you need to occupy some percentage of a person's attention for them to care about you. 
And how you get that intention is there are crowded areas. And so it's harder to get people's attention and there are less crowded areas. And this is a new area. It will get crowded. Like this community building approach will get crowded. It's a nice arbitrage right now, but it will get crowded because eventually, like how many communities can you really be a part of? How many podcasts can you really listen to? Like there's a few podcasts that I listen to where I really respect the person that's doing it and I want to listen to all their stuff. But, you know, how many could I possibly listen to? Maybe like five of them, maybe 10, but like it's going to get crowded eventually where like now you're just going to fight for attention in community building. Just like you were fighting for attention in distributing your product, it's going to end up being the same thing. And so I think like while there's an opportunity right now that there's an arbitrage opportunity, definitely take it, but know that it may disappear. I actually like the way that things are headed where things are getting crowded because it's unfortunate if you're trying to build like a billion dollar unicorn. Right. If it's going to turn out where there's, you know, a million little distributed communities or distributed newsletters and there isn't like, you know, one winner who takes the entire market. Well, yeah, that really puts a cap on your ambitions if you want to capture the whole market. But there are right. actually like a ton of markets like this that have worked for ages. In fact, pretty much the entirety of mankind since before the Internet, where there wasn't just one right. player who just dominated the space. Like if you wanted to start a school, you're never like my school has to teach every student on Earth. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, my school's a failure. Like, no, it's cool. If your school has like a few right. thousand students and there's like a million other right. schools. And I think the same is true if you're starting like one of these more audience, you know, focused aggregators like a newsletter or a podcast yeah. or a community. Like maybe you yeah. only have a thousand people or a hundred people and like yeah. that's good enough for you to make a living on. And if you can do that. Yeah. That's great. And if right. it gets super crowded and you know you don't get to a million people, like that's fine. Like you right. can take whatever you have and parlay that into like some winner take all market. Or you can just be happy running like your business the way it is. I think that's true, but I wonder how hard is it to build one of these communities? Like we're basically saying build a community, like a niche community of people that really enjoy your writing, and then figure out what product they want and then build that thing. That makes sense, but isn't that just shifting the problem from build something users want to write something users want and then yes. build something users want. Like it seems just it's exactly hard. what it's doing. <laughs> it's equally as hard in terms of like the challenge that's posed to you. I think the actual execution of it is slightly easier just mm. because your feedback loops for writing and talking are just like insanely tight. Like you put out, you can write a blog post in a day. In fact, I just right. interviewed Alex Wilhelm who works at TechCrunch. And when I interviewed him, he'd written seven articles in the past 24 hours. <laughs> and like that guy just has an insane feedback loop where he's like, oh, this is really catching on. Oh, I wrote about no code. Like everyone really loves this. Whereas if you're coding something, you could talk to users, et cetera, et cetera. And it takes a while. So I, I think you're completely right. Like we've just shifted the burden and you still have to go through the exact same process. Right. But it's a little bit of a faster process to go through, luckily. Okay, so maybe that's a faster way to find your users than building a product as a way to find your users. I think so. But anyway, obviously the route that you took has worked out spectacularly well for you. And I've been putting out some polls on Twitter, and I think it's the route that most software engineers want to take. They want to build a SaaS company. Yeah, and I don't know if what we did would have worked today. And conversely, like what works today wasn't available back then. So, yeah. Well, what would you say is, is like the biggest lesson that you've learned from what you've done that, that an early stage or aspiring founder could really take away? It kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, but like I think it's important to understand that like if you're trying to build a big company, it's going to take a long time no matter what route you take. If you do the VC back route or you do the like growing profitably route and like become huge that way, like both routes take a long time. It's kind of like advice that's been hammered home, but you kind of have to figure out like, are you going to enjoy doing this thing for many years? That sounds like an impossibly high bar, but it's not as bad as people think because you have to remember that as your role as a founder, you get to change what you work on, right? Like at the beginning, I built our backend, I built our iOS app. Then I started doing a lot of design. Now I do more management and more product development. And so like, you get to change what you work on. But the great thing is you get to decide what you're working on. 
And so it, it's a little bit easier than, oh, you're building a tool for lawn care professionals. You don't have to love and want to live and breathe lawn care professionals for the next decade. That's not the idea. It's that you have to enjoy the day-to-day work that you could be doing. And maybe at the beginning, that's engineering. Later, it might be sales. Later, it might be design or whatever. And you just have to remember in the back of your mind that like you have to keep yourself going. It's a marathon. You have to keep yourself going for a long time. And so like use all the tricks you can to make stuff interesting for you. It's the best part of being a founder. You have the freedom to keep things interesting and to change that whenever you want to. Right. Aleem, thanks the time for coming on the Indie podcast and sharing your story and your knowledge. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Can you let listeners know uh, where they can go to find out more about what you're up to with Streak? Yeah, uh, just streak.com, S-T-R-E-A-K. And for the founders listening, like it's pro- we built it for ourselves, for the founder use case. And so founders have to do a lot of stuff like sales, hiring, fundraising. It's a perfect tool to do all that stuff in your email. And super underrated to get a ton of leverage from a tool that could just make you move so much faster, especially if you're like an early stage founder and you're trying not to waste a bunch of time. Right, or sign up for a bunch of things. Yeah, exactly. All right, Aline, thanks again. All right, thank you so much. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>